Let's do it. Come on. You've got questions. We've got answers. Phone lines are open. It's time for The Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Michael Brown is the director of the Coalition of Conscience and president of Fire School of Ministry. Get into The Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. That's 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Well, this is sweet. Here we are. I have been looking forward to this all day. You've got questions. We've got answers. 866-34-TRUTH. Any question of any kind is welcome. And for the critics and the haters and the mockers, give me a call and let's have a talk. Let's separate truth from fiction. Also, we're going to continue our discussion about 90 minutes from now. We're going to do an exclusive YouTube chat. So if you're watching on YouTube, the same place, Dr. Brown channel will be doing a live chat, just answering your YouTube posted questions. That'll start around 4:30 Eastern standard time. So again, any question of any kind, as long as it's appropriate for Christian radio and relevant to this broadcast, it is absolutely warmly welcome. All right. We go right to the phone, starting with Jacob in Tennessee. Welcome to the line of fire. Hello, Dr. Brown. Uh, first of all, I just want to say hello. In regards to the uh, oh yeah, I'm sorry. In regards to the uh, the broadcast the other day where you were uh, you know having a discussion back and forth and everybody was giving you a hard time saying that you were too harsh and everything else. Um, I think that you were absolutely justified and you were actually very gracious. Um, oh well, thanks. Yeah, and Jacob, just for folks who don't know. And, and there were some, there were some folks who thought I, I was too hard or didn't give the, the guest enough time to speak. And I always want to hear that because I, I want to be fair. But yeah, when, when Reverend Ted Pike came on the show, he wanted to talk about the equality bill. That's not why I, I wanted him on the air, but because he wanted to bring it up fine. But my producer made very clear to him. And then I said over and over and over and over in the show that I'm going to take issue with your Jewish stance. I find his statements about Israel and the Jewish people going back to 1984, to be heinous, to be ugly, to be terribly misleading, to be terribly exaggerated and dangerous. And I'm going to rebuke that. I'm going to call that out. But when you come on the show knowing exactly what's coming and then get offended when it comes or refuse to go that way, yeah, I'm, I'm, I, I want it. My goal is to expose error, Jacob. And, and I appreciate fair. what you're saying, but, but I want others to hear this. My, the best way I can expose error is by letting someone who holds to that error come on and, and, and expose it and tear it apart. However, if, if it's going to be bad radio, if the person will constantly interrupt, if, if, if the person is not going to allow for a fair and honest interchange on my own show, then for the sake of listeners and viewers, it's bad radio. It's not fair. You've got two people shouting over each other. So he had no idea I was willing to keep him on another half hour. He had no time frame in terms of coming on. But yeah, that stuff is, is really ugly. We will expose it. We will expose Rick Wiles and True News. With I, mean, I keep getting set. I, I could talk about this only day and night for months because there's so much junk that's out there. But hey, listen, we'll keep putting truth out. And those who have ears to hear, will hear. That's all we can do. So anyway, thank you, Jacob. Quick I appreciate question. that. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Uh, Romans chapter 2, verse 14. Yes, sir. Um, 
can you help me understand? It talks about the Gentiles doing uh, naturally the things of the law, even though that they don't know and have the law. Um, and I guess we can argue, you know, the word there, you know, used would, would be the, you know, the Hebrew equivalent for Torah, nomos. But um, there are some aspects of the law. Take um, take the Sabbath day, which. Um, somebody may not do naturally. Obviously, I know I shouldn't kill, I shouldn't right. take stuff that's not mine. Um, so what is that talking about? Is that specific to certain commandments which Gentiles do naturally, even though they yeah. didn't have a teacher? Yeah, and, yeah. In, in other words, Jacob, what Paul's arguing there is is against Jewish superiority first, and the Jewish idea that because I have the law, I'm better than someone else. And he's saying, hey, look, you have the law and you don't keep it, Here's a Gentile who doesn't have it and does keep it. He's going to, yeah. he's more righteous than you, but certainly he's not talking about circumcision. He's not talking because uh, he's really refers to these people as uncircumcised or seventh day Sabbath. He's talking about moral commandments. In other words, one of the arguments yeah. that we bring for the existence of God is a moral law written on human hearts and ask if we're just okay. evolved human species, where does that come from? So yeah, you have people of conscience even among the Gentiles, and, and who by their own conscience, because remember Romans one eighteen, everyone's without excuse because God's revealed in nature, and then God has written his moral law on our hearts, so even though we're fallen and flawed, it's still there. Otherwise, the entire human race would just be killing and slaughtering each other day and night without stop. The fact that we have any sense of morality is because of God's law written on our hearts. So that's what Paul's talking about, Jacob. He's not talking okay. about Sabbath observance, circumcision, or the holy days but the universal moral law that's written on human hearts. So the first time people do wrong, they, they have a sense this is wrong, or they get convicted. Why? Because of that moral law written on their hearts. And then we can quench it, quench it, quench it. And, uh, but certainly that's what he's referring to there. No question. Thank you. That's exactly what I needed. I appreciate it. You are very welcome, sir. 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, Normally on Fridays, uh, it's extremely challenging uh, to get through. We get to as many calls as we can, and I try to balance uh, quality with quantity as best as possible. Every so often, like right now, we'll have a line or two open. So now's a great time to call on a Friday, 866-348-7884. Let's go to Mark in Australia. Where are you in Australia, sir? Hey, Dr. Brown, I'm in Melbourne. Melbourne. Okay, great. What time is it? Yep. It is it's 5 a.m. 5 a.m. Well, bless you for getting up early here. Three in the afternoon where I am. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. Yeah. That's okay. It's an honor to be on your show. Yes, sir. Go ahead. Uh, my, question, my question is related to certain Holy Spirit manifestations that we okay. see in certain type of churches. All right. Um, I've seen a videos of you affirming things like, you know, shaking and agreeing that it could be the Holy Spirit. Mm-hmm. Um, so I have questions on that. Um, so when we see in Scripture, when people fall down, you know, shaking, convulsing, every time that I'm aware of, it's usually related to demonic possession. And um, I've seen other people claim that when they are drunk in the Spirit, they relate that to the Holy Spirit, but... To me, when I read Scripture, why would the Holy Spirit make you appear drunk when we're called to be sober-minded and self-controlled? Mm-hmm. Yep, great questions. 
Um, right, so, yeah, so how would you, yeah. Yeah, so for, first thing is what we want to see is people changed and, and repenting of sin and submitting to the Lordship of Jesus and following the Word of God. That's what we want to see, right? My goal is not yep. to see people shake or fall or jump or shout or cry or laugh. My goal is to see disciples. Jesus didn't say go into the world and make people drunk. He said go into the world and make disciples. So that's our goal. We, we agree on that, yes? And that yes. the goal is to bring people under the authority of Scripture, under the Lordship of Jesus, knowing God as their Father, loved by God, and, and loving others. Now, at the same time, I know that sometimes people can be getting delivered from demonic power, and, and you, you have examples like that. Uh, as, as you mentioned, you know, one, a couple of cases of people falling to the ground or writhing or convulsing or screaming. So sometimes people are getting delivered from demons. So you would agree something like that could happen, right? Yeah. Okay, if they're getting delivered, right. Okay. What about, yes. so what happened to Ezekiel or Daniel or John when the Lord or the angel appeared to them, they, they fell to the ground as, as dead. Could you also accept that, yep. that someone's completely overcome by the presence I, of God? Yes. Oh. Um, falling down in the presence of God would be very different, in my opinion, than shaking on the ground and looking exactly like a demonic position. Right, right. Okay. But I'm just saying, someone, if, if I pray for them and the power of God falls upon them and they fall on their face, they fall on their back and they're, they're just overawed by the power and presence of God that you don't have a problem with. Yeah. I'm fine okay. with that. Okay. In, in theory, just because someone falls doesn't prove anything, but just in theory. Yeah. Okay. What, what about yeah. someone being so convicted by God that they're shaking and trembling? Like, like the jailer shaking and trembling in fear in, in Acts 16 or, or Moses, you know, just being so fearful of the presence of God on Mount Sinai that, that, you know, the whole nation is, is the mountain shaking, the people are shaking, that that type of thing, convulsing in holy fear of conviction, or shaking, I should say, in holy fear of conviction. Do you have a problem with that? Um, yeah, that that's kind of the that's the kind of the part I'm not really sure about and it because I've seen a lot of videos, especially with like people like Heidi Baker when they pray for people, um, they when they shake it looks almost violent in such a way where if they're being freed from something, sure. But mm -hmm. if it's just the presence of God overwhelming them, then shaking and convulsing and twitching and jerking where it looks extremely creepy. Because personally, I've been to churches where I've seen this, and I was, and I had a pretty, I, I did feel fearful to be in front of it. And some people were convulsing, jerking, and it just looked very weird and strange. And right. 100% so demonic. Yeah, so, so let, let me just uh, address this as fairly and honestly as I can, okay? Having been yeah. in Pentecostal charismatic circles over 47 years and having prayed for many people that don't even know anything about this, the next thing the power of God hits them and they're laying on the ground. I, I've prayed for people that were, they were in the service and they let me pray for them, but up until that moment their hearts were hard, but they were open to be prayed for and the power of God fell upon them and they fell to the ground shaking violently and weeping hysterically and, and got up gloriously born again. Were they getting delivered from demons? Was it God just shaking them by his power? Um, it's, we could debate that. There are flaky people that do flaky things and that just act like this. That's one possibility. There are people under demonic power and, and they're getting set free. And there are also people that get overcome by the spirit. And you ask them afterwards, Mark, well, what happened to you? 
They just said, I just encountered God. I mean, he's real. He's alive. When he came down on Mount Sinai, the whole nation shaking, the mountains shaking. When he shook the, the jail in Acts 16 and people's chains fall off, the, the jailer is, is trembling in fear. That there is, here, here's the bottom line, all right? And, I, and again, I'm going to look at the fruit. Jonathan Edwards laid it out like this, and I may have to finish on the other side of the break, that you can't judge either way. Oh, that must be the spirit because they fell. That can't be the spirit because they fell. He said, no, you actually can't judge based on that because the Bible doesn't tell us to make judgments based on that. It rather tells us to make judgments based on doctrine and conduct. Self-control doesn't mean that if I'm Daniel and the angel appears, I don't fall to the ground as one dead. It means I live a moral life. It's the Line of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the Line of Fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, friends, just a shout-out. Stand with us on Patreon. Help us produce more cutting-edge media. You need us on the front lines. You want us on the front lines. We get a lot of attack on the front lines, trust me, by the minute. But it's our joy. It's our privilege. Let us be your voice. Help us produce more materials, cutting-edge video, media of all kind. Get out and make a difference to be your voice. It's just pennies a day, $10 or more per month on Patreon. Join us as a partner, and then every week you get bonus videos. You get our exclusive YouTube chats, which once we're done, you get to watch. So we pour back into you, but it's a great way to help us. Would you do that? Would you take a second, go over to Patreon? dot com forward slash ASKDR Brown ask Dr. Brown. All right. So Mark in Australia, just, just one more moment. Jonathan Edwards wisely yep. noticed in the great awakening, because many unusual things happen. His, his wife would, would go into these extended trances for many hours at a time. People would shake, fall, they convulse violently and fall to the ground. Uh, John Wesley saw the same thing. George Whitfield saw the same thing. Whatever you described about a Heidi Baker meeting, I could, I could give you the virtual exact same descriptions, except much more extreme from the great, great awakening from the ministry of John Wesley, from the ministry of George Whitfield uh, in the 1700s and, and then other revivals in past history. And what Edwards widely wisely said is, you know, the, the Bible doesn't tell us to judge by that. It doesn't say now when the spirit touches someone, you know, the blood, uh, the, the, the heart rate will go up or the eyes will dilate or the person will shake or cry or fall. He said, it, it doesn't. So you can't say, well, that must be the spirit. Cause look at that person falling and shaking. Conversely, you can't say, well, that can't be the spirit. He said, you judge by Jesus, the Jesus of the scriptures being exalted by people coming to the knowledge of the truth, submitting to the scriptures, repenting of sin, walking, holy lives, living in truth and love. That's what you judge by. So that's what I judge by. I first see what's being preached and taught and how that lines up with scripture. If it's contrary to scripture, I don't care about what happens afterwards. I reject it. And, and then if it's not contrary to scripture, I judge by the fruit. So if, for example, someone next to me is overcome, next thing they're shaking, you know, shaking on the floor for two hours. And afterwards, uh, I hear their testimony and they came in there as a drunk rebel to disrupt the service and the power of God touched them. 
and they're gloriously saved. And 10 years later, they're on the mission field. I said, that must have been the Holy Spirit or somebody else. I've been fighting depression for 15 years. And, and I just, since I've walked into this building, the power of God's so strong, I can't even, I'm just shaking. My whole body's shaking. And, and they get hit by the joy of the Lord. Next thing, they're free of depression. And five years later, you're, you visit their church where they're a pastor. You said, it must have been the Holy Spirit. So you've got to judge by the fruit. What seems weird to you seems normal to someone else. What seems normal to you seems weird to someone else. So we judge by the word and by the fruit. And, and this has been the wisdom of those who've been in past revival movements. Now, let me say this again. There are flaky people doing flaky things. There are weird people doing weird things. There are weird Pentecostals and weird charismatics doing weird things and claiming it's the Holy Spirit. You'll judge it by the fruit. That's the best way. So this, I'm sure we could talk for an hour about that, but do you at least understand my approach and where I'm going with this? Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And it, it, it's very it's very wise what you're saying, and it's something I'll, I'll take into consideration. Yeah, and, and listen, Mark, last thing, you're a child of God. If you're in a meeting and something makes you uncomfortable, say, Father, I'm really uncomfortable about this. And, and how should I feel about this? Because you're, you're his child. And if you feel uncomfortable about something, then you don't have to be part of that meeting or that, that ministry, but you, you just, you weigh things cautiously in that regard. All right. Thank you so much for the call. Really appreciate it. God willing, I'm going to be in Australia February of next year, hopefully in a couple of different cities, but we'll, we'll post that info as we get closer. 866-34-TRUTH. Let's go to Eric in Boston. Welcome to the line of fire. Hi, Dr. Brown. Uh, thanks for taking my question. You're welcome. Um, I, I was I was listening to a recent interview between William Lane Craig and Ben Shapiro, and the yeah. topic came up of the divine Messiah. And uh, a comment was made that there's no precedence or really any category of divine Messiah in Jewish tradition. So, I, I mean, I, I know that there's some work out there, like Second Temple literature, like uh, Daniel Boyer and Eric. Benjamin Summer. I don't know if they necessarily talk about a divine Messiah, but I know there's a lot of work out there. So I'm just curious: is that true that there is no um, religious or no no tradition within Judaism of specifically a divine Messiah? Yeah. Uh, so uh, let, let me let me try to answer this in several different points, Eric. And I did watch part of the interview. So number one, Ben made a statement that the only category of Messiah that there's been in Jewish history as a political Messiah. That, that was a false statement. And, and I shot him an email saying that, that it was an exaggerated statement, and I was a little surprised that he made it. That we know in the first century, before Jesus, during the time of Jesus, that there were different views of a Messiah. Was there an expectation of a crucified Messiah? No. And So Ben was right in saying that, and, and William Lane Craig was, was right in, in agreeing with that. But was it just one Messiah, a political Messiah? No, we, we know there was a priestly Messiah that Judaism spoke of, as, as well as some Jewish traditions. We know that there was more of a teaching Messiah that some were looking for. We know that Judaism then begins to speak of Messiah, son of David, and Messiah, son of, of Joseph, the latter one being uh, one who suffers in, in war. It, so it, it, it was a generalization that went too far. So that's, that's the first thing where I would say what Ben said needed to be nuanced. The second thing is, yes, there's a lot of literature about, say, Alan Siegel's book on two powers or Margaret Barker on the great angel. 
for Daniel Boyer and arguing, as you, you mentioned, that there is expectation of a divine Messiah of, of some kind. Or Sahi Shapira, who's a Messianic Jew, arguing that throughout, throughout Jewish tradition, there's a divine Messiah. So that, his statement, many would say, is, is overstated. And my rabbinic Jewish friends would categorically say that he's, he's misusing the traditional material. But let's go back to the earlier days. I would say that there was not an expectation of a divine Messiah in the fullness of which Jesus expresses. So I would agree with Ben on that. However, there were certainly expectations where the Messiah had semi-divine status or a deliverer that, that was, was especially exalted as a man or had some type of angelic qualities. So that's the nuance. The other thing is Jesus didn't come saying, I'm God, I'm God, everyone bow down and worship me because that would imply that God is no longer seated in heaven or filling the universe, but is now walking among us like one of the Greek gods coming down and walking among us. That would give a misleading impression. So uh, when Yeshua comes, he hints at his divinity. He says, before Abraham was, I am. He shares other things that open people's eyes and, and get, what, what are you saying and attacking him? But his ultimate confession is he's the son of God who sits at the right hand of power, the right hand of God. That's considered a blasphemous statement in Mark, the 14th chapter, when he makes that confession. John's gospel says the word became flesh, right? We've never seen God, John 1, 18, but the word became flesh, John 1, 14. So it's, it's a much more nuanced thing uh, as if uh, Christians said, well, God came down as the Messiah. No, the son of God took on human form as the Messiah, as the fullness of God in, 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 in earthly form, etc. So the New Testament says things in more nuanced ways to help us understand God's complex unity. So Ben was fairly accurate in stating that, but overstated it and failed to realize how many bridge concepts there were at that point that could help Jewish could, people could understand. One, one question yeah, and, and then and one last thing, of course, we can go back to the Hebrew scriptures and see a divine Messiah prophesied in like yeah. Isaiah 9, 6. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, that, that's exactly what I was going to ask. I was going to say, um, you believe that you could definitely make a biblical case for it, but the question yes, is just specifically about the Jewish tradition. So, okay, that, that's what I was just curious about. Yeah, absolutely. I will absolutely strongly make a biblical case for a divine Messiah. And then I will look at Jewish traditions that help work as a bridge to get a Jewish person to open their eyes to that reality. But absolutely, I would point to it scripturally, and I'd use Isaiah 9, I'd use Psalm 45, and then I'd use the theophanies, the divine appearances in the Old Testament, say God appeared at brief times in human form. Here, he, he pitches his tent among us in a more permanent way. Thank you so much. Great question, Eric. Uh, 866-34-TRUTH. By the way, I get asked all the time, hey, why don't you and Ben Shapiro have a dollar? I'd, I'd love to. It's obviously a, a brilliant young man, and we agree on so much. I'm thrilled that he had Pastor John MacArthur on his Sunday show. And Pastor MacArthur did a marvelous job of opening up Isaiah 53 and, and, and speaking truths about Christianity. I'm thrilled he had William Lane Craig on and, and you know, listen to William Lane Craig. He's a brilliant philosopher and, and explaining things and explaining the significance of the resurrection. So that's, that's wonderful that Ben's doing that, having that dialogue. Uh, I emailed him last year and said, hey, uh, and it's not like I'm his buddy. I mean, he knows who I am. Um, but I don't, even if I email him, I don't expect a, a reply. I'm sure he's, he gets lots of emails. But I shot him a note and, and said, hey, 
I get asked all the time about us having a debate or a dialogue about Jesus or Jewish views and Christian views on the Messiah. And you probably don't want to do it, but just want to let you know, I'm happy to do it if you ever wanted to. And he replied, I don't really enjoy religious debates, but thanks Dr. Brown and, and, and left it there. So I don't think he's intimidated or afraid to do it, but it could be just as a Jew following Jesus and, and him being a, a modern Orthodox Jew and him having so many evangelicals who, who follow him that this may not be the kind of thing he wants to do. But let's pray. If the Lord's in it, I'm game. Hopefully he'll be game and we can have a real constructive discussion one day that will open up many hearts and minds to the truth of the Messiah. All right, we'll be right back. of Fire with your host, Dr. Michael Brown. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. That's the number. 866-348-7884. What a joy. What a privilege to be on the air now. Going on 11 years on Daily Talk Radio now. Daily Talk Video as we post on Facebook and YouTube live streams. What an incredible joy. You know, years back, so you've got questions, we've got answers. Phone lines are open. I'm going to go right back to the phones in a moment. But uh, years back when people somehow just weren't seeing us as much, one of my favorite calls would be an African-American caller. Say, Dr. Brown, I just saw you on TV yesterday. I didn't know you were white. And I thought, I mean, I don't know if my voice, if there's such a thing as a black sounding voice or a white sounding voice, or, I mean, obviously I don't have a Southern accent, you know, that, that, you know, and I used to have more of a New York accent, but I still got the New York personality. But I I always got a kick out of that because I thought, you know, we talk about so many controversial issues and I try to go right down the middle of, of fairness and honesty and equity that, that uh, I, I was mistaken for being black. I thought, how sweet that is, because we were talking about like really difficult. We just talked to like the Trayvon Martin, George Zimmerman trial and things like that. And I thought, isn't that nice? But any, and some like, you're older than I thought. You're younger than I thought. Not too many think I'm younger than they thought. Okay, 866-34-TRUTH. And we go to Rain in West Virginia. Welcome, Rain, to the line of fire. Thanks for calling. Hi, Dr. Brown. Thank you so much for taking my call. You bet. Okay. So my husband and I, we moved to West Virginia to be a part of a Southern Baptist um, church. We felt like we were called us here to do this, to partner with them. We're actually charismatic believers, but uh-huh. the relationship's really good. Um, hey, hey, look, anyway, you could have been in a snake handling church in West Virginia, so I'm glad you're not there. Right. <laughs> That's true. Yes, very true. Um the pastor actually, he came to us, he's going through Corinthians, and he's getting ready to talk about um, Corinthians 13, 14, 15, and he said, can you tell me why in, you know, charismatic circles, why is it, you kind of, like when the invitation's given for, to like, to like receive salvation, receive Jesus, why is it following that, following that, um, do they pray for you to receive the gift of tongues, which I've 
I'm like, okay, like I've seen that. That's real. That's part of my culture. But I didn't really have like a concrete answer um, to give him the, like, why, why is it salvation yeah. then tongue? Yeah. So first you don't want to think in terms of salvation then tongues, but rather salvation and the baptism of the spirit. That's a common distinction made in Pentecostal circles. Many charismatic circles don't really make that distinction. They say, well, you're baptized in the spirit of salvation, but you may receive gift of tongues or some other gift later, or it may be manifest later, something like that. But for those who believe that there's salvation and then subsequently the baptism in the spirit, why is that believed? Well, one reason is scripturally that in Acts 2, we understand that the disciples were already saved, right? They were already followers of Jesus and already saved, but they had not yet received power from on high, Luke 24, 49, Acts 1, 8. And then Acts 2, they received that power from on high and they begin to speak in tongues. So that's the initial sign of it. Then in Acts 8, Philip preaches the gospel to the Samaritans, right? The people of Samaria. And they hear the gospel, they're saved, they're healed, delivered, but it says the Holy Spirit had not yet come on them. So then Peter and John come lay their hands on them and the Holy Spirit comes on them in a tangible way that even Simon, the sorcerer, sees it and he wants to get that same power. Now, some would say, well, that's because this was a new group coming in and the apostles had to give it official verification. Others would say, but look, it's clear they're saved, they're undeniably saved, but they haven't yet received the Holy Spirit. In Acts 10, as Peter's preaching, suddenly the Gentile believers begin to speak in tongues, which shocks them because they're Gentiles. And then Peter says, well, they should be baptized. That Obviously, if the Spirit's on them, God's accepted them. But then Acts 19, Peter meets believers in Ephesus and says, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed or since you believed? So the question is, why would he be asking if they received the Spirit if that's automatic? So we believe it's salvation. Pentecostal belief that the moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit lives within you. So you are, the Spirit is in you. We believe that the moment you're saved, the Holy Spirit baptizes you into the body of Christ and makes you part of that family. We believe that. But we believe there's a subsequent empowerment. And in the modern Pentecostal movement, which really traces its roots probably to the mid to late 1800s, as people in India, different parts of the world began to experienced this fresh filling of the spirit began to speak in tongues and prophesy that, that people have a subsequent empowerment, even, even like a DL Moody or others, they had this, they were saved, they were preaching, they were being used by God, but felt there had to be more. And they sought God for empowerment. Now we didn't speak in tongues from what we know, but he, he received this power and this was something very important to him. So that's the, that's the reason for it. Now you can debate it scripturally. What I would say to the pastor, I'd show Max eight, I'd show Max 19, and he would say, well, in each case, you know, it was a different group, Samaritans and followers of John the Baptist, and that's why they you know, had to kind of be initiated in. You'd say, but can you see the viewpoint that you were saved but hadn't received the Spirit yet in terms of this special gifting or empowering? And say to the pastor, hey, we can agree on this, that everything we need is found in the Holy Spirit, and either we receive it at salvation or once we're saved, God empowers us in a unique way. I once asked Leonard Ravenhill, old man of God, revivalist, prayer warrior. I once asked him, 
I heard somebody on the radio say the moment you're born, you have everything you need. You have two eyes, two hands, two arms. You just have to grow. You don't get more stuff. So when you're saved, you have everything you need. And Brother Len smiled at me with that twinkle in his eye. He said, I've never seen a baby born that was fully clothed. So in other words, being baptized in the spirit was like being clothed. It was something empowering that was added to us. So that's the explanation for him. Especially, as I said, Acts 8 and Acts 19, the people are saved, but they have not yet received the Spirit. And then through prayer, they receive the Spirit and something tangible and visible happens. And most commonly, we see that as tongues, sometimes prophecy or something else. And then whatever his view is, you honor it. You know, if he's the pastor, you honor it. And if he welcomes you as, as charismatics, great. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Ren. I really appreciate that. You are very welcome. 866-34-TRUTH. Uh, let's go to Christian in Idaho. Thanks for holding. Welcome to the line of fire. Thank you very much for having me. You are very welcome. Um, so I had a uh, question in regards to, well, first off, I just want to say that um, I, I've often thought that a lot of the rhetoric I hear, no, I don't want to say rhetoric, it's not a good word, but just a lot of the teaching I hear from people who are Masonic Jews tends to be very similar to my own, and yet they don't come to the same conclusions, my own being oneness. Now, when, when I hear people say things like, for example, that, like I've heard you say that the Spirit, or the Son rather, is primarily identified as Lord, and the Father is primarily identified as God. That makes perfect sense to me as somebody who believes oneness, but that's actually something we read into the text, right? It's not what it actually says. So it's like, why would we think that? Well, obviously, if you have the phrase only one, they can't both be God if only one is God. So my question to you, and the question I have to basically all the rest of the Trinitarians is, how can the Father be the only true God and the Son also God if they're not the same person? Yeah, great question. John 17, 3 comes up all the time. So so first, I, I see very clearly uh, numerous distinctions in Scripture between Father, Son, Spirit, not as manifestations, but as distinct persons. Uh, I, I, I see the Father sending the Son, the Son sending the Spirit, the Spirit testifying of the Son, and I see Jesus in John 17 saying, as he prays to the Father, he speaks of the glory that they enjoyed before the foundation of the world, right? So in this, in this very same context, in John 17, all right, uh, this, is, this is what he says. He says, uh, and now, Father, verse 5, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. So very clearly there is Father and there is Jesus the Son sharing this glory before the world began. So that that I, I do understand. I also know, for example, that Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8 that there's only one God, the Father, and only one Lord, Jesus Christ. Now, do you therefore say that Jesus is not God or the Father is not Lord? Certainly not. So Jesus is not saying that he's not true God. He's not saying that, but there's only one true God, right? When we call out to God the Father, there's only one true God. Not many different gods. They're in a multiple, multiplicity of gods. There's only one true God, all right? That's, 
and, and, and the Father is one true God. It's not saying Jesus is not one true God. You believe he is, right? I believe he is. So he's obviously not saying that. This verse presents the same difficulty for you as a oneness person that it presents to a Trinitarian, but it presents no difficulty to me as a Trinitarian. So in your mind, is Jesus Christ God? Yes. Okay. So then you have the same problem with John 17, 3 that a Trinitarian would. Well, so my thinking uh, on it has always been that if you are, if they are one and the same person, then it would be the equivalent of, as saying, you know, well, it would be the equivalent of me and you were one of the same person. And I said, you were the only true, um, I don't know, radio host. Right. And it turned out that I was also a radio host. You know what I mean? It would be like, oh, well, we're the same guy, though. So obviously I'm also a radio host because I'm you. Uh, right, right. So, be, so, but, right, but because Jesus is also God, right? Uh, because Jesus, but you're right. not me, and that's the whole thing. Because Jesus, Jesus is God. He's not saying the only true God to his exclusion. The ones that try to use that are the ones that deny his deity. But as a oneness person, it presents actually more problems for you. And and when I read Second Corinthians thirteen fourteen, when when Paul says, "May the the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus." and the fellowship of the Spirit be with you, each one with a distinct role, that, that presents a, a problem for a oneness person. When I read John 17, 5, where Jesus speaks of the glory he had with the Father before the world began, that's saying there were two before the world began. So in any case, unless you're going to say that Jesus is not true God, then you have to realize that the verse actually works against you more than a Trinitarian. Hey, Christian, out of time here, but thank you for the call. It's the Line of Fire with your host, activist, author, international speaker, and theologian, Dr. Michael Brown. Your voice of moral, cultural, and spiritual revolution. Get into the line of fire now by calling 866-34-TRUTH. Here again is Dr. Michael Brown. Hey, big news, big news. About 45 minutes from now, slightly less, we'll be doing a YouTube chat. So this is on our YouTube channel, Ask Dr. Brown, A-S-K-D-R Brown. Just interacting with you as you're posting the chats on YouTube. Those who agree with me differ, have questions, probably for about an hour taking your questions, interacting. I welcome critics. I welcome critics to post questions, objections, issues, and I'll reply to as many as I can. So we can only get to so many calls on a Friday, but we'll be doing this YouTube chat. Then once the chat is done, in order to view that, become a Patreon partner, you get to view all the chats. We do bonus shows for you every week as well. That's patreon.com forward slash ask Dr. Brown. All right, let's go to Richard in Ohio. Thanks for holding, sir. Welcome to the line of fire. How do you do, Dr. Um, Brown? Uh, I've listened to you for many, many years. I've listened to many of your debates, like James White and Anthony Buzzard and a few more. But um, I have a question that's killing me. I've studied many different religions. I'm Christian, soul Christian. But I've studied many different religions because of all the differences to see what people were looking at. And, and I studied all the way through up to Calvinism. 
So the question, I actually have two questions. The first question is about sin. If I stay with the Baptists or the Pentecostals, um, they'll tell you that, you, you know, I just confess to Christ my sins and I'll be forgiven. You go all the way up to Calvinism and, it act, and, it, and they act like that now I'm sin free. If you're a true Christian, you're sin free. And that's telling me that, that it's, I don't even know if it's possible to be sin free. Yeah, so Richard, just, just to jump in. No, Calvinists, unless you're some type of weird hyper-Calvinist, Calvinists are quite conscious of sin and, and, and human failings. So here's the deal. Uh, read through 1 John chapter 1, all right? 1 John chapter 1 embraces this head on. If I continually practice sin in an unrepentant way, right? So I, I continue walking in disobedience. I refuse to repent, confess my sin, turn from it. Then I'm obviously not a true Christian. Either, either I was never saved or I've walked away from the Lord. First John, the rest of the book makes plain that if you're born again, you will not continue in sin. But first John, the first chapter says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So the power of sin is broken in our lives. We are no longer slaves to sin. We are slaves to righteousness. But this is a daily choice we make with the help of the Lord. Lord, I yield my life to you, my heart, my mind. But because we're in this world, we always fall short, even on our very best day. doesn't mean we're not saved. It means that so we are not yet we perfect. still stumble in sin. Yes, sir. But we are not slaves to sin, and sin is not the habit of our lives. In other words, before I was saved, I sinned freely and joyfully. So I, I got high as much as I could. I sinned in other ways as much as I could. And I was glad to do it. Now, if I think a wrong thought, Lord, I'm sorry for that unclean thought. I turn away from it in Jesus name. If I speak an unkind word, Lord, I'm sorry I did that. Now I'm, I'm a child of God the whole time. It's not like I stopped being saved at that moment. So we're not perfectly freed from sin in this world because we still walk in these bodies, uh, in this flesh, but we are freed from the dominion of sin in our lives. So sin is not the Got it. Okay, good, good. That's helpful. And your other question? My other question, and this this is just as big to me. You know, I see so many Christian faiths. Is it not true that the Holy Spirit is to guide us, to teach us when we're trying to understand the Scriptures, first of all? Yes, sir. So why... So why so many different Christian groups have so many different thoughts, like pre-trib, post-trib? I mean, I mean the way that, like we were just talking, sin or no sin, I mean, it right. goes on and on. Right, so here, here's, here's the answer. In terms of the fundamentals, the things by which we are saved or lost, all truly born-again people will agree on those. I have ministered around the world in many countries, in many cultural settings, I have been in all kinds of unusual uh, atmospheres and in many different groups and denominations within the states as well as overseas. And as for the fundamentals of the fundamentals by which we are saved, there is agreement and the Holy Spirit has led us into truth. There are other areas, sir, that are not essential for salvation. 
And we see that right within the New Testament, they're being corrected. There's a doctrinal error here. There's a misunderstanding there. So we are all growing and maturing and don't have perfect wisdom and revelation on all points. But there is a line between salvation and damnation, fundamentally between truth and error. And that line cannot be crossed without real danger. And then we continue to grow. It doesn't say that we all are walking in all the truth fully at the same time. We're all growing. And we, we seek to humble ourselves and Lord, uh, say, Lord, continue to teach me. Thank you, Richard. So I, I would be at peace in the majoring in the majors while I have questions about the other things where we have differences. Thanks, sir. All right, uh, let's go over to Derek in Hawaii. Welcome to the line of fire. Hey, thanks, Dr. Brown, for uh, taking my call. Um, I had a question regarding, um, I'll preface my question, I I don't subscribe to uh, replacement theology, Um, but I I wanted to ask, is there an unhealthy degree of distinction or polarization between uh, Jew and Gentile? Um, As I read Scripture, there always seems to be a a unifying um, in one new man um, in Christ. Um, So that's that's my question, and, and yes. a little bit with the Old Testament. Um, it seems odd when I read certain, um, and I can see where sometimes replacement theology, I see where they may be coming from, but it seems odd when you read scriptures that prophesy about, you know, um, the inhabitants of the earth during this messianic age, you know, going to a Jew um, to learn uh, from, from the right, Lord. Right, right. Yeah, so, so as a Christian. Mm-hmm, yeah, I'm, I'm just jumping in, Derek, only for time's sake, sir, okay? Because uh, mm-hmm. the clock's ticking, and I want to answer your question. Anything that polarizes Jew and Gentile within the body is not healthy, just like anything that polarizes males and females within the body. At the same time, anything that demolishes any difference or distinctive is not healthy. Just like we have no problem in our churches, having men and women and having men's meetings and women's meetings and recognizing diversity in males and females and husbands and wives and children, etc., and And we celebrate those distinctives as part of our unity in Jesus, just like an orchestra is united by its many different instruments and players. The same way there is Jew and Gentile within the body Equal in Jesus, I believe the Monday broadcast, I'm going to get into this in much more depth, what Paul meant when he said there's neither Jew nor Gentile, there's neither male nor female, there's neither slave nor free. But it's the distinctives. In in other words, why is it that a Jew following Jesus should be commanded to keep a Sunday Sabbath when that's not found anywhere in the New Testament? And even making Sunday a Sabbath day was not instituted by any part of the church until the fourth century. Why shouldn't a Jewish follower of Jesus say, Hey, uh, we, we were given the seventh day Sabbath and that was a sign from God to us as a people. So as a Messianic congregation, that's our day of, of worship and our day of rest. Why shouldn't they be allowed to do that? Or, or why shouldn't they say, Hey, we, we celebrated Passover all our lives. Now we're followers of Jesus. We celebrate it in the light of his coming, etc. Why should they have to switch dates and celebrate Easter on a, on a day that wouldn't correspond with, with when Jesus died on the cross or rose from the dead. So that's the thing. There, there needs to be the ability to have our distinctives and yet be one in Jesus. 
And we can be one in Jesus in our many cultures, in our many customs, in our many differences. Now, if there is any sense whatsoever, Derek, of a Jewish superiority that is sinful and arrogant and wrong, or that a Jew in Jesus is any better than a Gentile in Jesus, or that there's any pedigree that saves us, that is absolutely wrong. Any sense that as a Jew, I have some special entitlement to salvation is serious error. Any sense that as a Jew, I am in any way superior to anyone else is a serious error. However, the recognition that there is Jew and Gentile, male, female distinctives in Jesus were exactly the same, right? Male and female in Jesus are exactly the same. And yet I can never have a baby because I'm a male. All right. And in our church building, we've got men's rooms and women's rooms. And there's, hey, we have a special men's retreat here. Oh, the ladies are doing this. So in Jesus, exact equals, but different expressions, diversity contributing to our unity. Just like the food court at the mall, all they, they don't take all the different foods, the Mexican and the Italian and the, and the American and the dessert and the Chinese and the Japanese and throw it in the blender and mix it all together. No, you have all the different ones but all in that one area for the same purpose. So that's how I see our diversity and the different expressions we have in more contemporary services and more traditional services and, and a more charismatic service and a more conservative service and a messianic service and a more liturgical Christian service and all different expressions glorifying the same Lord, but as equals and peers. Because what matters is not being Jew or Gentile. What matters is being in Jesus, in him, saved, Born again, renewed, people of God are right. Join me in about 30 minutes over at Ask Dr. Brown on YouTube. We're going to continue taking questions, interacting, tackling objections. We're going to have a blast. Join us there.